0: In a small organization, and I've been fortunate, I've managed a commercial research company before becoming an academic, and I had 40 people. I could get them all in a room and talk to them face-to-face. But what happens if you've got to talk to 200,000 employees who are scattered around the world in different offices, as one of the companies I studied uh, has? Clearly, you're relying on things like newsletters and online forums and conferences and discussion groups. But even then, you find that the people who attend are only sometimes the loud voices. What about the silent? You know, and there's a lot of studies now being written about uh, silence and psychological safety in an organization. Many people won't speak up. How do you create safe? And this is the sort of depth we've got to get into. How do you create safe spaces for employees to speak up?
1: Hi. I am your host, Raquel Ark, and welcome to Your Listening Superpower podcast. This show opens your mind on ways to transform challenging conversations into opportunities for clarity, connection, and ease at work and at home. Discover how to grow your listening superpower to help you become a more effective communicator. Be inspired by conversations with authors, scientists, and leaders that will help you grow your leadership toolbox with strategies that you can use right away. Let's work smarter and feel better with our listening superpower. This is for all of you who are in leadership positions. This episode of the Listening Superpower podcast will show you how your organization can have really impressive benefits once you decide to shift your time and resources for organizational listening. So take a moment to stop talking, sending out Slack messages, anything where you're sending information out, and listen to this episode with Dr. Jim McNamara. You're going to be surprised and hopefully inspired to approach communication in your organization in a new way. Jim has just published a new book organizational listening to expanding the concept theory and practice and in this book he reports about 10 years of research into how organizations listen and often don't and how they should he gives practical guidelines and also a critique based on 60 government corporate and non-government organizations case studies he did research in UK Europe US and Australia Jim is a distinguished professor of public communication in the School of Communication at the University of Technology, Sydney. He is an internationally recognized leader in evaluation of public communication, and he's also known for his pioneering studies into organizational listening. He is the author of 16 books and almost 100 book chapters and journal articles, and a sought-after keynote speaker. It was really an honor to have him on the podcast. We had him a few years back, and we'll add that link to this episode. But in the meantime, find out what he has learned since. Enjoy listening in. Jim, it is such a pleasure to have you back on the Listening Superpower podcast. We had an interview some years ago, and you had shared with us your research findings that you found in your book. Um, from 2016, where you identified that listening was actually a huge gap (laughs) in public communication and in studies and practice, and we dove into that. Um, Now you have a new book, and we'll get into this in just a few moments. Um, But before we dive into your new book and your new findings, I would love to know what has changed for you as a person since we last spoke, and how is this, maybe this research, how is listening impacting you?
0: I guess one of the main things that's changed for all of us, for all of your listeners is, of course, COVID-19, the pandemic and the continuing aftermath of of that, which is uh, a lot of home working, probably more isolation than many people have had. And what I have found interesting that you could expect in in a case of a pandemic and an emergency that governments and organisations would be listening more to people without getting jumping ahead into research findings, what I have been surprised by is that even in some, I've studied uh, marginalized communities, refugee communities, groups that were very vulnerable during during COVID, and found that they were not being listened to at all. The governments were just transmitting messages to them, which was really surprising. And I thought we were further down the track with listening than we were. So I've been disappointed in the lack of change. And even during difficult times, you would expect that there'd be more empathy, more listening, more understanding. And to reach out to communities, you have to understand their needs, their particular perspective. um, And that's still not not happening. So as a researcher, I'm surprised. Uh, As a human being, I think this is something we've got to advocate passionately and try and change the attitudes of many organisations and change some of their practices.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how you know when when the when COVID first started, there was a point where there were some things I thought, oh wait, something is changing. They are paying attention, but it didn't last. Very, it didn't last very long.
0: <laughs> no, we've uh, I've recently presented a paper at a conference uh, that was spurred by a paper I read in twenty twenty one, written by two Europeans, and it was a wonderful paper that talked about moments of liminality, uh, meaning a moment where like the end of World War II or the end of the plague, where everything is potentially different. There's a time to reflect along now. And uh, this article argued that COVID was such a time, a time that we could really stop and reflect and maybe make some changes. But what we're seeing is there's a rush back to the the normal and the new normal, as they call it, seems to be maybe a little bit of hybrid working, possibly a four day week, but not much is changing that's interesting that uh, we seem to have gone through this incredible period of change for people. And we are simply most, most governments and corporations seem to be rushing to get back to how it was before.
1: You know, I know a lot of people, and I can include myself in this, you know, space where this reflection did happen. And, and for me, actually, personally, I still am reflecting on it. And I'm noticing changes from this COVID. But people who made major changes in their lives because of this situation, I wonder now we're rushing back, but now we have this mix of online and offline. And I have the sense that I hear the word overwhelm quite a bit actually right now. And I have a sense that our systems are just overloaded with doing everything. And I wonder if it's part of that from one extreme to the other extreme and trying to find its balance. But this is just my philosophical brain (laughs) kicking in place.
0: I think you're quite right that many individuals have made enormous changes. I've seen it among my friends, among my university colleagues where some people have just decided to retire early, some people have decided to go and live in the country, uh, made big, big changes in their lives. Uh, but it's not really happening in our major institutions. We you know we're rushing into AI and we're rushing into new technologies, and most of them trying to apply them to the same old practices. And as you say, we're we're now trying to do everything. We're trying to do all the old things we did, and we're trying to live in an online world. And so it's going to be interesting how it shakes out. And and to me, I think uh, listening is relevant to this because our institutions, our governments, our companies need to sit down and, and really listen to their employees, their customers, their stakeholders to work out what kind of world do we want? If they don't, they'll be out of touch with the employees of the future, and they'll be out of touch with the customers of the future.
1: Yeah. So let's let's get into your new book. Why don't you kind of give me a little bit of background about your book? What was the spark to writing your book? Where your starting point where what your starting point was of this book?
0: Yeah, so the book is called Organizational Listening 2. Uh, because it is a new edition of a book I wrote called "Organizational Listening: The Missing Essential in Public Communication." I wrote that in published that in 2016, but there's two unique things about uh, this book. It's it's not simply a minor update. I call it "Organizational Listening 2," subtitle: expanding the concept, the theory, and the practice. And the two unique things about it is, first of all, uh, I've done a lot of research since 2016. Um, and particularly, that first book was based on research within a lot of government agencies, a few corporations, and some NGOs. In 2018 and 2019, uh, I did extensive research inside some large corporations to balance it out. So I wanted to be sure I looked at NGOs, governments, corporations, and some nonprofits. So I looked at corporations. I also, during COVID, I did a number of studies looking at marginalised groups, refugee communities, uh, what the UK calls BAME communities, or some countries call called culturally and linguistically diverse communities. And that's where I found even more evidence that we think we're not being listened to. Those groups are not being listened to at all. I found Mm. some shocking results, such as refugee communities, when we sent multilingual researchers in to interview community leaders. Uh, we found that the government was simply doing advertising about vaccinations and health health checks, and they weren't even watching the TV ads. And when I asked them where they got their information from, they said, oh, our local community leaders. So I went back to the government and said, "Um, have you been talking to the community leaders? And they said, no. They had not even engaged with the community leaders. Who were the people, who were the go-to people? Um, So there's a lot more of my research. There's another... 15 studies uh, in the book. The second unique thing is that a number of, I want to respect a number of my colleagues around the world who've come into this area. Uh, and there's another 10 or 12 uh, academics who started to do research into organizational listening, hopefully triggered by my initial work. And so I've paid credit to some of their work. And so my this this edition is attempting to, to be a summary of all of the research that's been done over the past 10 years, mine, And a number of colleagues, some have looked at uh, listening to employees, some have looked at listening to customers, uh, and some have looked at political listening. And so that's the two things. It's a lot more new research. And that's why I've called it expanding the concept and the theory and the practice. Um, And it does lead into a lot of practical suggestions of how we might go about uh, better organizational listening. So it's not just a theory book. It's a book for professionals as well.
1: Wonderful. You know what? When you say that, that really excites me. And I love the, I love the fact that there's so many more people who've gotten interested and are doing more because listening is such a huge topic. Sometimes you think it's little, but you dive in and it's just like it's everywhere. And to be able to see how it's playing out in these different areas. And at the same time, find the common themes that are across the board in these different areas, you know, that's that are impacting organizations. That is really exciting. And I just um, think it's wonderful how that's been inspired.
0: And it's, it is a, an important area because all of the principles of interpersonal listening apply in, in an organizational context. And of course, a lot of the listening should be interpersonal, listening to their staff, listening to their customers. But as I point out in my research, at an organizational level, there's a limit to how many people you can engage with interpersonally. Particularly, say you're a government department, like a Department of Health. The Department of Health in the US might have to listen to 200 million people potentially, or 50 million people in the UK. You can't do that with your ears. And so when I talk about, uh, when I conceptualize organizational listening, I include interpersonal listening that we have studied for many years, but also what are the systems and the tools and the technologies and how do we use them? What are the processes that you, for example, even listening to multicultural communities, even in my country, Australia, there's over a million people in that category of refugees and, and multicultural groups that are recent migrants, You probably speak different languages, Um, that's a million people. How do you listen to a million people? And not only that, many of them will not speak up and will not come forward. So organisational listening has to include outreach. You have to go out and engage with those groups. So organisational listening opens up the whole areas of engagement, two-way dialogue, participation, uh, consultation, uh, and all the systems and processes that go with that. And so it's quite a big field. Uh, And we have focused a lot on interpersonal listening, which remains critically important, and all the ethical uh, and inclusive issues around that apply. But there's also a lot of systems and technologies and processes that are necessary for an organization to act effectively and inclusively listen.
1: I was just thinking about a conversation I just had um, recently in the last couple of weeks with someone in an organization where we were just noticing that you know, a lot of companies do a great job of listening to customers. So listening from outside in, but to, but those same uh, tools and techniques or same that same focus is not done with employees. I was wondering that's if you have some thoughts about that.
0: Yes, that's true because I talk a lot about, I use the general term stakeholders because to me and to many writers, your most important stakeholders first and foremost are going to be your employees. You don't have an organization without your employees. As as CCO theory says, communication constitutes an organization. You don't have an organization. You don't have organizing without, without communication, which must include listening. In a small organization, and I've been fortunate, I've managed a commercial research company before becoming an academic, and I had 40 people. I could get them all in a room and talk to them face-to-face. But what happens if you've got to talk to 200,000 employees who are scattered around the world in different offices? That's one of the companies I studied Uh, has. Clearly, you're relying on things like newsletters and online forums and conferences and discussion groups. But even then, you find that the people who attend are only sometimes the loud voices. What about the silent? You know, and there's a lot of studies now being written about uh, silence and psychological safety in an organization. Many people won't speak up. How do you create safe? And this is the sort of depth we've got to get into. How do you create safe spaces for employees to speak up? And, uh, and, and say what they want to say. Uh, how do you afford them the time and the opportunity? Because people are busy. They have busy lives. It, it requires policies. It requires systems. It requires processes uh, to be put in place. And that applies to employees as well as customers. And there is a lot more literature, as you say, on listening to customers. But even that is very one-sided. It's mainly listening to customers to try and sell them more you know, Mm -hmm. finding out their likes and dislikes so we can sell them more. If you complain to a company or organisation, you generally get a lot less attention than if you're trying to buy a new product. And so there's even a lot more that companies can do to move beyond an exploitive kind of listening to progressive companies are finding that one of the companies I spoke to was was moving ahead where customers were designing new products. They were coming up with ideas and the company was open to this and discovering that they could actually build better products when they really exciting. listen to their customers.
1: Yeah, and that's so exciting because that focuses more that focuses more on the potential, the future potential, on innovation, on excitement, inspiration. Where your your customers are actually part of your partners in moving the company forward.
0: And that's a really important point, and something I've tried to focus on in an organizational listening too, is that. Um, we don't want to present organisational listening as a burden or a cost that organisations have to do. We've got to focus on the benefits. And what I've tried to do in one of the chapters is really look at some of the very tangible benefits and using the case studies from the research where, you know, company, in one case, employees designed new products that made money for the company. And so I think if we just say organisations have got to listen and they've got to have these systems, they see, oh, this is a burden, this is a cost. My argument is that it's a major opportunity. It's a source for better engagement. It's a source for governments to get better trust. And my goodness, governments need to increase their trust. It's a source for companies to make money as well as build trust. And so I think that's an important message we've got to pick up instead of looking at, and we've tried to tried to move on from identifying the gaps and the problems to looking at the opportunities and the potential that not only benefits the individuals the employees and the other stakeholders but also potentially really can benefit the organizations
1: can you maybe from your your research give us an example of what that looks like
0: well in the one of the big companies that I studied in Europe it has offices in Greece and in uh, Bratislava and Slovakia and, uh, in and uh, Netherlands so I looked at Eastern Europe Western Europe uh, Southern Europe to get a mix I looked at the United States, Uh, and the UK uh, to get a variety. And in one particular company, um, they set up an innovation competition inside the organization and employees got awards for ideas and ended up designing a number of new products. They also set up a customer council and got direct feedback from customers and rotated the membership through. Um, So there's some very positive examples there. Those companies that did that uh, had a really low attrition rate, a really low turnover rate, and when you get a low turnover rate of employees, that's a lower, reduces training costs, it reduces recruitment costs, it builds employee loyalty, and sometimes it builds productivity. Um, so these are all benefits that are mapped out in some of the research. In the case of citizens and governments, we have a chronic trust issue um, around the world in many many countries that's been reported by. Uh, the OECD, has been reported by Pew Research, it's been reported by the Edelman Trust Barometer, and democratic governments to survive are going to need to address trust, and you don't address trust by ignoring people, you you have to listen to people to build trust. And so there's a big lesson for governments because uh, we are seeing democratic, uh, what's called a democratic deficit, a lot of dissatisfaction in democracy uh, in many, many countries, and in fact, um, The United States of America, sort of the bastion of democracy, is described now as a failing democracy, where people are turning away from democratic principles and even considering alternatives. So there are big benefits in building trust. There's benefits in building reputation. There's employee retention. There's productivity benefits. There's probably more than 20 different types of benefits that are outlined in one of the chapters in the book, citing many independent research studies.
1: It could be that the senior leaders in organizations assume that they are listening, you know, but they're, but they're actually not, or not fully, maybe they're listening to certain people, certain groups, certain situations or whatever. How do they know that they're really listening to their employees or to, how do they know that? Are there some signs or some signals or things that can, can help them know (laughs) if there's more to do?
0: I think there are two types of of leaders in organisations, if I could speak very broadly to that. There are the leaders who are trying and really do believe they are listening, as you say. There's also a lot of other leaders, though, that I would describe them as philosophically grounded in modernism rather than postmodernism. Modernism, Modernism meaning if we think back to modernism, it was all about experts know best. The public was fairly under, under, uneducated. People, the great unwashed, uh, the hoi polloi, we referred to people. There are still many leaders, particularly older and often men, who believe that only experts, and even in government, we see many policy development cycles that are published. Put in um, develop the policy expert consultation and contribution and then you roll the policy out you don't go out and talk to ordinary citizens who are the ones who actually have to live with the policy so that that group is believes that experts know best and the public can't really contribute much and I mean the public meaning employees the ones who are trying generally believe they are listening but what they are doing is uh, reaching out and they are hearing a lot of things Uh, but they're not stopping and recognising who is speaking to them because it's very often selective listening. It's the people with the loud voices. Uh, In most consultations, it's the usual suspects, as I say in the book. I mean, who's got the time to write a submission to a public consultation? It's actually the professional lobby groups, the big organisations, the lawyers, the public relations firms, the people who can afford to hire them. But what about the people living out in the north of england the western parts of the united states or scotland or wherever in eastern europe they have to live with these policies from the us government or the european community and whatever and what you really need listening is hard i mean i've said in the book to listen inclusively you can't just sit in the office and wait for people to talk to you because only select numbers do and you tend to end up listening to the squeaky wheels you've actually got to go out and do outreach and engage, purposely go to a select, to a selection of groups. You might go to certain geographic areas. Um, And, you know, governments are discovering this. Even the UK government is now decentralizing a lot of its offices. It was almost entirely, the government was based in London. And that's been criticized for many years. And in London, you hear certain voices, highly educated, sophisticated cosmopolitan people. When I was researching in the UK, they were talking about building the new high-speed train project as one of the things I studied, and they were doing public consultation. So I left London, and I went to the north of England, out into communities, talked to farmers, talked to people in shopping centres. Most of them had never heard of the project. Some farmers that was going going to go through their land had not heard of the project. And I went back to London and said, well, have you been there? And they said, oh, no, we invited them to write submissions. And so, you know, they believe they're listening, but it's a very uh, egocentric approach that they've got to come and talk to me. Real inclusive listening means we've often got to get off our butts and go out and talk to the people who are involved and talk to a representative sample of people, not just to the, the squeaky wheels and the, and the noisy ones.
1: How, how does that work? Can you well, I know there's a lot of different ways that you have to figure out how to listen within within organization, how to do this outreach or even outreach within the within you know with your employees. there is an outreach thing. Are there some guidelines or some some themes that have shown up that helps to listen better in this outreach in a way that makes it more effective?
0: There's no silver bullet in the book uh, after interviewing and looking at a lot of case studies around the world. I've identified around 30 different common techniques of listening and they range from well-known things like setting up customer councils and employee groups, you know, citizens, juries, all of those. So I go through all of those. Of course, listening is also done through traditional research methods, such as surveys and focus groups and interviewing. But in those, there is a tendency, for example, with surveys to rely on surveys. And usually they fix questions. Uh, only certain people fill them out and you get a very limited amount of information. And governments traditionally rely on polls. And these polls, public opinion polls, are filled out by a very small number of people. And who's got the time to fill them out? And so we, we don't disregard all of the citizen juries and customer councils and surveys and focus groups and all of those traditional methods. But there's also a need to... Um, to do true consultation and a consultation rather than being passive, for example, sitting in a head office or a government department and and using the internet to invite people to send in submissions, we know that many people are not going to be using the internet. Many people haven't got the time. So what you've got to do rather than simply doing that is probably literally go out to certain geographic areas, certain community groups, and that hasn't got to be Uh, A long, long process. I mean, one of the consultations I studied was talking about youth issues. So I asked them, have you actually gone and met some of the youth groups? And they hadn't. They said, oh, no, they can send us submissions. And I said, well, look, there's a major youth group that I've talked to that represents young males who've been in trouble with the law, often come out of prison. There's no way they're going to send a submission to the government, but they've got real problems in society. And there and there's an organization that represents them. You just could, by catching a taxi, go to a meeting with that group and hear their views. And so it's a very simple thing. You know, get off, get out of your office, get out of the executive suite, and sometimes do what I did. I went to I went to parts of the US, I went to the Midlands of England, and I went around to shopping centers and asked people questions. And it was surprising. And many people were very happy to talk. And we're very critical that they were never asked those questions. And so the book goes all the way through to then very advanced methods. like um, when you do receive, I mean, one company I studied gets more than 2 million calls a year to its call centers. Now, that's a lot of voice, right? They're all digitally recorded. So I asked them, do you get them transcribed into text, which we can do with with voice-to-text software? So we did. And then we did text analysis using machine learning and from 2 million conversations we're able to identify for that company the 10 most common concerns that their customers had just with simple text analysis using machine learning software. So that's like at the top end when you can analyze vast quantities of calls to call centers, written submissions, even social media posts, you can crunch vast amounts of voice and identify key themes. We're not into we're not able to listen to individual voices in that that context, but there are at that high level those sort of tools. So it's everything from go out and talk, have a you know go and talk to the refugees, go and talk to women's groups, go and talk to farmers, all the way through to machine learning software and potentially AI tools that are used for listening rather than talking.
1: So. Someone might be listening to this. I'm like, that takes so much time. We don't have time for this. I'm just, you know, that's um, resources. So can we show, give some examples of how actually doing this has huge value?
0: Well, as I mentioned uh, before, the the book has a whole chapter on the benefits of listening. But one of the key things I do address the costs, including the time cost, there is this idea or this barrier that says, well, I can't do all that extra work. I'm really busy. The message is really, really simple. I found that up to 95% of what we call communication in organizations is producing content and distributing information. Stop doing some of that. Because people aren't reading all that stuff. We are talking at people. And so I'm talking about a substitution of speaking, reducing the speaking, and in place, putting in some listening. It will generate far better results than talking to people. And so that's a very simple way. I'm not talking spending any extra time or any extra money. Stop doing some of the things we are doing, which is this dominant approach of just talking and talking and talking and i've worked in public communication almost all of my life i started as a journalist i've worked in advertising and public relations and reflecting on my own career as well as doing research what we call public communication is 90 to 95 percent just sending out stuff and that's not communication so we've actually completely misunderstood the term communication it's about communists it's about community it's about sharing and exchanging information. And so to me, organizations, it's the message is simple. Stop doing some of the stuff you're doing that I can—that in evaluation we can prove is ineffective anyway. And if you replaced it with efforts at listening, people really, really respond. That's the exciting thing. When you listen to people, I mean, we, we were analyzing calls to call centers, and then we did an outbound series of calls to people who would complain because we'd analyze their content and we knew what they, so we called them back using trained call center people. And they were just amazed saying, wow, it's incredible, you called me back and you understand what I'm talking about. And so, you know, I think there are big benefits and uh, yeah, stop doing some of the, And that's where I, I, my background comes out of evaluation. So I have found in evidence that a lot of communication is totally ineffective. It's just churning out information but when you substitute talking for some listening, you get far better results. So I don't accept that there's more cost or more work to do. There's more effective work to do. Yeah. Listening is communication. That's the key thing. It's not the waiting time or the passive time. Um, the, in the end of my book, I use the phrase that I've quoted at conferences that listening is a communicative act. And very importantly, not listening. Is a communicative act. When you're not listening, you're saying a lot, and organizations need to understand that.
1: So I'm just going to take a moment to just let what you just said sink in, um, because this is so important. Um, that listening or not listening is a communicative act. So you have you are communicating something, it and it does have impact. It does have consequences, and. Sometimes just being busy and doing what we normally do is not does not mean that it's effective, and that uh, communication is not just about sending, but it's about exchange. It's about um, it's about this building community actually within the organization, within our society, and whatnot. You know this exchange that is happening, and we t- you talked about public communication. Like if we stop doing some of the sending, we start listening, then exchanging how we how we. Balance our time and resources and the in the role what we do. But I can also take this over to you know senior leaders who do a lot of talking, or team leaders who have their teams who do a lot of talking, um, start balancing that percentage of talking and listening. So it, it can happen at the interpersonal level. It can happen at the public communication level. It can happen at the executive communication level. There's so many different levels to start looking at the percentage of sending versus listening, speaking versus listening and how, um, and to balance that more out. I don't know if you've studied this or you have a feeling for this, but do you have a sense of what percent of which is more effective (laughs) of, is there a sense of that? It's probably hard to measure, but I have to ask. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> the the term balance is, is is a good term but i'm i don't necessarily say that it should wherever will be 50-50 um, i can't imagine organisations for a good reason you know do, because there are many issues that we do need experts like during covid we needed scientists to tell us what was happening we needed health authorities so there is a genuine case for a lot of transmitting of information but going back to that term communication communication is different to information. And so we need information, but communication comes from the Greek term, communis, the noun, and communicare, the verb, which means imparting and sharing or exchanging. And so I think what we've done is picked up on the the information part. um, and, And that's not helped by the communications industries that are about telecommunications and transmitting. And we've sort of confused that with human communication and human communication, must involve listening. I don't know that it's 50-50. I think, it, I think it's a sliding scale that during a crisis when we need to hear from experts, it could be 90% uh, transmitting information to us. But during consultation, I think it should be 90% the other way. Yeah. And I'm finding many consultations are tokenistic. The government, mm-hmm. the government or the department's already decided what to do
1: yeah. uh, and
0: they're not, really, they're not really doing it.
1: So it's probably also the order you know, the listening first and then the communication. So maybe it's not only the amount, but also the, the, that it's an exchange, the listening, the communicating, the listening, the communicating, that there is a, um, a relationship between (laughs) listening and communication throughout a process, throughout a project, throughout, um, you know, that usually it's like one or the other, or one's done first and then the other. So it's probably how that works together. Just like, just like a marriage.
0: (laughs) Well, you use the term marriage, something uh, I say at at conferences. I speak a lot to senior executives, um, and I've used this phrase many times. But I actually say to them, look, if you really doubt listening, after this conference, go home to your families and your colleagues. And for the next month, just keep talking. Just talk all the time and see how your relationships go. And they all laugh nervously because they know what will happen with their husbands, wives, children, friends, if they just talk all the time. Then I say, or you could go home for the next month and really focus on listening to people. How do you think your relationships will go? And again, they all giggle nervously. They know. They know personally what will happen if they talk too much and not listen. And I say to them, why is your organization any different?
1: That's lovely. That's so nice. So When you think about what we've talked about so far, um, is there anything else that you think is really important for those who are listening to this um, to know about the research um, and your findings?
0: I think the big messages are that one, we're not getting better at listening, we might even be getting worse, um, which is worrying. And, And I think it's directly related to the plunge in public trust in our institutions. I think secondly, uh, the concept of organizational listening that it involves the simple things, everything from talking to people face to face but we have to, because of the issue of scale and mediation, we have to have systems and tools and processes, including advanced things like text analysis of large documents, ability to transfer call center voice into text and analyze it. Because how do you, how do you make sense of 2 million calls to a call center in a year? And yet that is very rich data. And not only that, it's the actual voices of people. They're actually speaking to you. And many organisations just simply try and manage each complaint or call on its merits and resolve it. And they have a, a report that ticks off, was it resolved or not? But the learning doesn't come back to the organisation. So there are sophisticated tools. And then I think the third thing that we talked about is we're not actually asking organisations to do any more. We're actually asking them to change their communication from being almost all sending out information to being truly dialogue, sending out information and listening to people, and that they will find very, very significant benefits from doing that.
1: So thank you, Jim, for being here on this podcast, for this interview. I think what you're doing is so, so important. And I love once again, hearing how many other researchers are getting involved in this topic. So it shows that there's, um, yeah, that this is really important. And I just want to, um, (laughs) I'm really excited about that. Um, If people want to get in touch with you um, about this topic, or they want to buy your book, how do they do that?
0: Well, they uh, will find me on LinkedIn, um, preferably, or Facebook, or uh, uh, or, or x the email address is also on the university of technology sydney website the university publishes our our email addresses uh, so that's easy and they can also the publisher of the organizational listening to is peter lang um, p-l-a-n-g abbreviated dot com so they can go on the website or just search mcnamara um, yeah. i've fairly easily found and I do listen.
1: (laughs) You've been, you've been around. (laughs) Yeah. So for, for anybody looking for the book, it's called organizational listening to expanding the concept theory and practice. And it's with Peter Lang publishers. So that's excellent. Thank you, Jim, for being on the listening superpower podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Kel.
1: I'm your host, Raquel Arc, and you have just enjoyed your Listening Superpower podcast. This is an independent show, so please show your support by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, and sharing with your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. What you love, what questions you have, any great guests that you have for the podcast. Email me at listeningsuperpower at gmail.com or send a voicemail at plus four nine. Check out listeningalchemy.com if you want to help your team communicate more effectively together. We focus on evidence-based listening strategies, and we do it in a playful and experiential way so that your team can work better and feel better together. Thank you, Cecilia Mercado, for your amazing podcast production. Ivo Tiemann for your inspiring music, and Dorothe Streicher for your impactful artwork. It's been fun, and see you on the next episode.